1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable, for some, <laughs> serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. I am Russell Shoemaker. New listeners, we say palatable for some because some folks are very upset to find that this is not a typical art history podcast. Yes, we're kind of like the alternative to the art history lecture podcast. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Alt art history. You're welcome. <laughs> we dig into the artworks and the life of the artist, and we like to dig into some weirder perspectives on the works at the time. But, and this is a big butt. Russell and I, (laughs) we like to have a good time, okay? Nos gusta to goof around, okay? We have pontrimons that may startle you, Mm. so if you made a fuchi face to any of this, there are so many great art history podcasts out there for you. Yes. We promise we won't be mad if you leave right right now. Adios. Bye. Adios. Adios. Uh, Stephanie, what are we talking about today? Today, we will be discussing one of our favorite painters, Agnes Pelton. Yep. Another theosophist. Yeah. Yes, another theosophist. So I guess the uh, the palatable litmus test is coming early because, Stephanie, it's the return of the god bod, baby. Okay. We're back. The god. crowd is going wild. We were doing fine. Walking along with our picnic basket in hand, looking for a nice place to eat. Oh, oh, what's that? Oh, no. It's an Agnes Pelton painting dangling over a pile of leaves. Yeah, that that looks good. I can't. Let's go on over there and take that I can't, painting, Stephanie. No, I can't do I mean, it's just again. on a pile of leaves. What could go wrong? No. You and your theosophy madness. You made this monster, Stephanie. I I did? You made me research theosophy for Hilma, okay? Uh. (laughs) And then I subscribed to Pablo Sender's YouTube channel. (laughs) Review time. What have we learned? Uh, uh, t- tasteful astral chore coats yeah, are right. good. Okay. Um, god bods. Yes, evolving back into your god bod, but I, I did kind of already say that. Yeah. Anything else? Astral seeds. Sowing your astral seeds. Arg. Okay. Yes. Okay. Anything else? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Repurposing Eastern religions, maybe gluing a little oral cowboy hat on top, <laughs> selling it on Etsy. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, what about a hodgepodge of science, philosophy, religion, sometimes fascinating, sometimes convoluted, sometimes playing footsie with eugenics? Um, uh, I think, yeah, just a little fuzzy. your favorite phrase, vibes. No. Yeah. No. Vibes. Okay, great. Did not know that. Thanks for that. Stephanie. Yes. Stephanie. Stephanie. I'm trying to count here. Stephanie, you are not one body, Stephanie. You are seven little Stephanie bodies in one. Isn't one of those a god bod? Look, don't ask me questions, okay? Any question is like two weeks of research, okay? Okay. Hang with me. This may get confusing for a second. The energy tethers the physical body to the mind body. Otherwise, there would be no connecting threads between what impacts you physically Mm. and what impacts you emotionally, mentally, psychically, etc. And this is as simple as I can describe it, that energy, those vibes running through your body, Stephanie, your bodies, I guess, lots of bodies, is the gravity that makes your blood flow. 
in your veins, okay? okay? It's the spark for the neurons and synapses. It's the seed that travels when your body dies to its next life. It's everything. Those vibes are everything. Okay. So once again, we're walking along. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find that prime picnic spot. And then, of course, you know, we fall into the theosophical tiger trap, oh, no. trying to snag that Agnes Pelton painting dangling over a pile of leaves. And if you did that, your body would feel the vibration of physical, emotional, psychic pain from falling into a pit. Oh, no. And as that vibe travels upwards through those seven bodies, it it collects feelings, impressions, experiences, and then it tumbles back down, right? It tumbles back down into your thoughts. And as it does so, it takes on colors, it takes on shapes, and it takes on a form, a very specific form. Okay. And that form projects from you to a liminal world that few can sense, but even fewer can see. So when a clairvoyant looks at you, Stephanie, right in the eyes, those dead yoga eyes, (laughs) they are not only looking at your physical body, but those emotions, that energy, that vibe, those thoughts that have formed into colors and shapes floating in this dimension all around you. Okay. And depending on how evolved you are, Stephanie, Hmm. where you're at with your your walk, with the god bod. That's personal. (laughs) You, too, can start to see those personal feelings and forms that have taken shape all around you. And I think a lot of what Agnes Pelton is painting is kind of based on this idea here. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. So, listeners, Agnes is frequently compared to Hilma of Klint because of her interest in theosophy, but she's also compared to Georgia O'Keeffe for her interest in the desert. But Agnes is uniquely her own. I honestly see more of a comparison to Charles Birchfield. Oh, yeah. Well, he and Agnes have at least one formative connection, which we will get into. But like Birchie, Agnes is also hard to describe in just one piece. So today we will be discussing tres works that she made during her time in the desert. So let's just get into it because it has been a long enough wait already, listeners. As always, you can find all the images we are going to discuss on our website at artslicepod.com or some on our Instagram page at artslicepod. We also cover another Agnes Belton painting, one that we absolutely loved but could not fit into this episode. The future is on our Patreon page, so after you're done with this episode, go check that out. Agnes is silently watching the geography of America changing in the silver-framed train car window, her hands folded in her lap. The rolling tall grass prairies of Kansas quickly turn to dull, flat fields before the altitude climbs and the train tracks slowly turn, changing momentum to build towards the Rio Grande. The trees have grown taller, grittier, more weathered from facing harsher climates. The golden New Mexico mountain landscape shifts. The trees slowly shrink into short desert shrubs scattering for miles across the dry earth resembling gentle waves. Soon the waves crack and pucker under the heat of the sun, bare cliffs erupt from the soil only to crumble under wind and heat. At times, Agnes catches these scuffed silver streamliner rail cars trailing behind hers and the dust left behind, both reflecting the sunset afterglow. Eventually, the rhythmic clicking and chugging of the locomotion slows, the local desert trading posts and brown speckled mountain range of the Inland Empire passing by much slower. (laughs) 
this was an entirely different world. Agnes was no stranger to being a stranger in places that she had never been, while the great majority of her adult life was spent in the orbit of New York City. New York City. New York City. She had traveled to so many different climate and cultures like Hawaii, Syria, Lebanon, Georgia, not that Georgia, Greece, (laughs) and Italy. She had also found time to escape from the crowded East Coast to the spacious westernscape of Taos, New Mexico, and the lush hills of Pasadena, California. So, listeners, when she did pack her bags (laughs) to up and move to the California desert in her 50s, it wasn't out of character. Okay, she had been flirting with this idea for decades. Yeah, I mean, this is about as far as you can get from New York City, I think. New York City, as, <laughs> as possible. It's like Hattie Corner. What like, does that mean like again? You, yeah, it's like it's a diagonal line across the United States of America. Okay. Yeah. I'll take, I forgot what that meant. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was actually pretty respected in the art scene of New York City. New York City. New York City. And actually, right before the shit hit the fan in 1914 with the First World War mm. and a 2.5-year pandemic. Hold her beer. <laughs> She was actually a featured artist in the 1913 Armory show, along with the infamous Marcel Duchamp. Mark Kale. <laughs> Duchamp. That's right. I forgot. Um, Pablo Picasso and Wassily Kandinsky, to name a few. Unlike those three, Agnes's work was not ruffling any feathers. Okay, right. She was showing these kind of whimsical like princesses and landscapes. The one we're looking at here has a it's a pale female figure hanging out in a jungle with with a monkey. Yeah, with a monkey. <laughs> and the, the landscape is actually pretty nice. The figure kind of reminded us of Margaret McDonald Macintosh's figures. Right. Nice, beautiful, wisp, wispy yeah, ladies. That may or may not have tuberculosis. <laughs> right. Nonetheless, Agnes was doing what was so hard to do, which was to sell your work to make a living. Yeah. But there was always something in her that just wasn't settled. Mm-hmm. Okay? And over the years, she changed as a person. As we do, maybe New York City, New York City, New York City was too materialistic for her. It was too busy, maybe too dirty, <laughs> or maybe she had caught the bug for that Western sunshine during her travels. Maybe, maybe her lungs could breathe for the first time <laughs> when she left. Yeah, New York. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is what air tastes like. What? <laughs> or wait, it doesn't. This air doesn't taste. So that's good. Don't taste the air. <laughs> Whatever it was, when she first landed or, I guess, stepped off the streamliner, I can imagine she looked like quite the outsider. Yeah, I mean, she's pale. She doesn't, right. she doesn't <laughs> right. have that tough lizardly skin yet. No no gun in a holster. Oh, my God. No cowboy boot right. with, the, uh, with the little spur on it. Right. I think the cowboy boots is what maybe gave her away. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can just imagine her walking the streets, just getting lost. Skin just, burning. Ma- <laughs> I hope she's wearing a hat. Um, she's kind of mesmerized by how wide the sky is. Well, the I mean, the desert's a different world, especially yeah. at this time. There weren't high-powered air conditioners or right. misting towers. Oh, right. I forgot <laughs> Outside about Outside of the Starbucks, right? You have to account for the sun's pace and movement. Well, for Agnes, this pace, this slower way of living suited her, and it suited her artistic practice. Listeners... Like Hilma off Clint, Agnes made work to pay the bills. Okay, she made landscapes and portraiture commissions, but her life's work were paintings that would go mostly unnoticed. She wasn't hiding them from the public, but she knew that they weren't going to be flying off the gallery (laughs) walls in some rural town. It took years, but she had been slowly building towards these meticulous, incandescent, cryptic paintings. You can see her work evolve slowly over five years, but then suddenly there was this new depth to her work that is absolutely in 
influenced by the desert. Yes, and you can first see this change in Sandstorm from 1932, which was one of the first paintings she made after her move to the desert was permanent. Sandstorm is a melding of her previous didactic, glowing abstract paintings and her first experience with a particularly strong sandstorm, a common desert occurrence where strong winds scoop up loose sand and Scorpions, dust from that dry desert soil. Desert shrews. They're all floating around in there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, it looks like a sandstorm. Yeah. The sun or the or the day moon oh, is almost yeah. blacked out. The bursts of light that she had been painting now look like they're dispersed through like a dirty windshield. I, so it's partially monochromatic, staying within those earthy greens and ochres, so which makes you feel like you're enveloped in the environment as well. And she flips between flat and dense, realistic shapes, which adds to that eeriness. And it keeps you off kilter. Right, right. And your eyes kind of weave in and out. Mm -hmm. Like those clouds, they feel saturated with dust. But then this flat, curly loop breaks up the realism into a doodle. It's a soft, curly squiggle. It's a a gel pen gesture. Yes, yes, a gel pen gesture. (laughs) I thought you liked that. I love it, yes. In the margins of your homework. Yes, (laughs) or your work documents. Sorry. (laughs) Um, It reminds me of a stage curtain being lifted mm. and in the center is this radiant glowing blue flower which yeah. you call the day moon yep. i love that <laughs> it looks like a stencil echoed by a larger stencil but it is not a stencil <laughs> listeners carefully rendered carefully so very carefully yeah. rendered and the glow of that day moon it's so bright like your eyes instinctually squint and that's because she's using layers and layers of glazes to get that effect so it's actually mimicking real light and she does such a great job yeah, with them we, we recently just saw an Agnes Pelton in person for the first time serendipitously Bl- blew my mind this to me feels like you've paused a video and by total accident have found this perfect little moment because it seems like everything is about to change its shape and that window of light is going to be closed very soon. Mm. Agnes is expressing something much deeper here. The hidden feather and the faded rainbow. They're almost easy to miss because of all of the sandstorm commotion. She literally meditated four weeks to come up with these images. So so that gel pen gesture there, (laughs) that was a result of hours and hours of meditation. Everything is loaded with meaning. Also, a rainbow is something that might be unexpected in a typical abstract painting. But Agnes wasn't, you know, confining herself to just representation or abstraction. Right, at a time when it was really popular to be one or the other. Yeah, I mean, even when things do get abstract, they never lose their gravity like a Kandinsky or a Hilma Mm -hmm. Offklint. They begin and end in our observable world. She's down to earth, like (laughs) literally. Yeah, and that makes it very authentic. Like, she's just being Agnes. She's not trying to be someone else. She's not trying to fit into the art world. Right, and that's why we love her. Agnes was born an only child to American parents in Stuttgart, Germany. Florence, her Brooklyn-born mother, studied piano at the Conservatory of Music while Agnes's papa, William, was a Louisiana sugary refinery heir. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Definitely. Totally saw that coming. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, how about this part? <laughs> he was into alpine mountaineering. Okay. He gets loaded up on the sugar and then just sets, <laughs> sets off into the... I almost thought it's sunset, but yeah, that, that, <laughs> that works. Later, they also lived in the Netherlands and Switzerland, but as the years went on, little Agnes's health was worsening as she was frequently experiencing backaches. Right, because her father dressed her up as a little Sherpa and made her <laughs> carry his backpacks <laughs> up into the uh, alpine mountains. That's horrible. Well... <laughs> That's why you have a kid, right? Florence decided it was time to go back to Brooklyn to live with her mother, Agnes's grandmama. There was the sex scandal with her grandma and a pastor yeah, <laughs> back in the do. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a big enough scandal that it actually made the New York Times, New York, New York Times. Times. And was a shadow, I guess, that kind of followed her family around. Everything we read, everything we watched, everything we listened to, talked about this sex scandal for at least 10 minutes. We're not going to do that to you listeners. It's not that big of a deal. It was a huge elephant in the room, basically. (laughs) She has to deal with that awkwardness. And then when she's nine years old, Agnes's father died of a morphine overdose. Okay. Whilst living in Louisiana. Okay. Not Not in the, the Alpine Mountains. Maybe he mistook the morphine for sure. Sugar. I, I'm, I'm guessing he's adding sugar to everything. A fine sugar. Add a fine sugar for my Brooklyn-born like, wife, Florence. Is he, is he like Hillary Clinton with her hot sauce in the purse? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, with morphine? Sugar. Oh, okay. Gotta have a little sugar here. I should. There. I say I shouldn't have put the the morphine in the same bottle as my sugar. I feel, my heart is slowing to a pace that is just untenable. <laughs> okay. I I do declare I can't go on. I think that's the chicken from Looney Tunes. I'm not sure that's a Louisiana accent. I don't know what that a was. A rooster? I'm not sure what it is. We're not, we need to work on us. Okay. A southern accent. All right. Um, all right. So Florence is now a single mother, mm. okay, to support Lil Agnes and her grandmama. She starts selling that that sugar morphine off to people. On the side. Making a lot of money. <laughs> One of them's dead, though. Okay. Or maybe sleeping. I don't know if she had time for any of that, if I'm being honest with you, because she started her own music school mm. in the house. Yeah, musician Stephanie. Damn. Okay. All right. You might have a point there. All right. She was also taking in boarders. Okay. Okay. She was also, I don't like incriminating it. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Okay. Were they all laying around the house? I don't know. Kind of passing out? I don't want to think about it. I feel right. really bad for Agnes if I'm being honest. Yeah, this is not a good you. situation for Agnes. Florence was also homeschooling little Agnes because she was too sick to go to school. Mm. Poor Agnes had to deal with the elephant in the room of the sex scandal. She had to deal with random boarders and Drug people playing I mean, piano sh- I mean, badly. Sugar addicts. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so it doesn't sound like little Agnes was having a good time in this family. She was having kind of a shitty childhood. Agnes mentions that she was instructed to stay quiet. Okay. The one exception being when she practiced the piano. Oh, that's really sad, actually. Yeah. I'm trying to laugh, but that's really sad. I know. Pobrecita. So according to her, quote, from the time of puberty, I was much inclined to melancholy and tears, which was probably aggravated by being the only child in a household of deeply religious and perhaps unnecessarily <laughs> serious people, end quote. I mean, just imagine like not even being alive for like a whole decade yeah. yet. You've lived all around Europe and then you're back to the U.S. and you're constantly sick and you don't have any friends because you're homeschooled and mm-hmm. then you're an only child. I, so she was super isolated in 
wasn't allowed to have any agency, it sounds like. She had to, she had to be quiet. But these little traumas, they have a way of unexpectedly showing up in the work that we make as artists. A few years later, Agnes followed her artistic intuition and attended the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn when she was only 14 years old, opening up a new world of possibilities for her. After finishing her studies, she assisted one of her professors, Arthur Wesley Dow, AWD, in his <laughs> summer school in Ipswich, Massachusetts. A semi-rural East Coast town with like tall, beautiful trees and marshes. Yes, little beautiful bridges. light. Yes. You Some can boats. Tiny little boats yes, just boats. tied to the bridge like you aren't supposed to untie them, but you, you totally could. Anyway, go on. Okay. Um. <laughs> just saying if you want a boat, email me. I'll give you some coordinates. If you <laughs> if you want a lot of boats. Okay. And I mean a lot of boats. There weren't that many boats. I mean a lot of boats. All right. We can definitely see why artists would flock there in the summertime. Mm. And if you happen to be there, AWD's house is still there. It's very black. It is black. matte black. It. Yeah. Yes, yes. So Arthur Wesley Dow's instructions verged on the meditative and the spiritual. He was very progressive for the time. Quote, it is not the province of the landscape painter to represent so much topography, but to express an emotion. And this he, well, they must do by art. End quote. Basically, opposed to the traditional, you better make it look like the thing it is, (laughs) AWD is saying, capture your own experience Mm -hmm. in that landscape and let that guide the work. And you can see this resonate with his students, not only Agnes, but he also taught Georgia O'Keefe. Okay. Uh, Birchie, Charles Birchfield from episode 12. So all three of them were inspired by nature, but they didn't just copy it. They turned it into a projection of their own inner experiences. Right. And that is a much more difficult path for an artist. Anyone can be taught how to make X. Yeah. But what you do with X, that's not something that you can master in a summer in a a, like little tiny cottage in Ipswich, right? Right. It's actually like a lifelong pursuit. For O'Keefe, she zoomed in so closely that flowers became these monumental landscapes. Landscapes. Mm. And then for Birchie, for Charles Birchfield, he painted the rhythms and the vibrations and even the moods of the forest around him. And for Agnes, just like the other two, it would be years before her vision became clear. Mm. But she first started with light. So Agnes traveled. She studied that light in Rome. She was probably drawn to Baroque masterpieces like those of Artemisia Gentileschi or Caravaggio. Oh, the murderer. I, oh my God, I totally see that now. See. Like the glowing colors in the darkness. Right. They, oh my God. they amped up the contrast to emphasize the glow of that light. Oh, I never thought. So Agnes's light is more electric than those two, mm-hmm. but it's totally there. It's there. I would never put those two together. You can't unsee it now. I can't unsee it. You can't. <laughs> This interest in light showed up in those wispy women of the vines, and it's funny how life works because those paintings caught the attention of collector Mabel Dodge, who invited Agnes to her ranch in Taos, New Mexico, Mm. opening her eyes for the first time to that sun-drenched western landscape. I mean, okay, so there weren't buildings and canals to buffer the light. You know, maybe there were some trees and some mesas. The landscape wasn't just about the physical light. Agnes had also begun to look inward. All of the family drama, the health issues, the body aches and anxieties. She could have been so easily crushed by all of this. Instead of religion, you know, being that she was raised by 
very religious people, making her very sad. Prone to melancholy, I believe. Yes. And and seriousness. Yes, exactly. (laughs) She sought out that wave of new spiritualism that was so inspirational to artists like Hilma of Glint or Vasily Kandinsky. Inevitably, Agnes was sucked into Theosophy's orbit. Why are you fist pumping? Yes, because Theosophy's back, baby. By this time, (laughs) Annie Besant had long taken the torch. Blavatsky had passed away or become that seed that was a kernel in another spiritual dimension. I don't know. Okay. Unlike Blavatsky, though, listeners, Bassan honestly was a fucking badass. Yeah. Not going to cover it here today, but go ahead and check out her work in women's suffrage and decolonizing India. The big country. The big country. And she also helped change the course of modern art because Bassan, with the help of C.W. Leadbeater, who kind of looks like the quiet kid at art school who made all his own clothes and just didn't shower that often, they both took theosophy down an even stranger road. So Thought Forms, published in 1901, was not the strangest, but it's definitely up there. It contained visual examples of said thought forms, right? It's in the title. And those thought forms looked like what we might call abstractions. Yeah, this book even predates Hilma of Klint's abstract works. Absolutely. I mean, these were the first widely published abstract images. And look, were these capital A art history abstractions? No, technically no. But be weary of fuchi face art history <laughs> gatekeepers who don't want to acknowledge Theosophy's yeah. influence on abstraction with a capital A. They just try to explain it away as not being intentionally right, abstract. Give right. me a break. Yeah, yeah, because while we don't know if Hilma had a copy, right. she probably did. Honestly, probably. she was running with that group, but we know for sure they were eyeball fuel for Vasily. <laughs> right. Thoughtform's relationship to art is complicated and deserves an episode all on its own. Winky face. Winky face. Winky face. But just look at the examples that we've included, listeners. It's hard to dispute its influence. Yeah, Theosophy was already feeding the mind of many artists, but now Thoughtform's was feeding the eyes. Yummy. (laughs) What? (laughs) And Agnes was absorbing all of this. She spent a winter meditating, studying, and sharpening her spiritual faculties with other like-minded occultists in Pasadena, California. She just began to see the world in a different way, and it probably clicked with what Arthur Wesley Dow was teaching her decades earlier, Mm -hmm. and it just crystallized in her work. Her canvases started to embody the sensory experience of living in the world as theosophy solid. Energy and atoms just pulsating through everything we experience, both the seen and the unseen. From that point on, there was just a slower burn to her paintings. You can see everything. Nothing is hidden. The compositions aren't crowded, but you need time to really digest it, to orient yourself. It was becoming clear that New York City, New York City, New York City maybe just wasn't the place for Agnes. So in 1921, when Agnes's mother passed away, it might have come as a relief. <laughs> she no longer had the responsibility of being the only caregiver for her. Maybe she was just like, well, I'm single. I'm 40. Don't want to mingle. <laughs> it's time to downsize, save some money. Okay. So she does what most artists are not doing. And she's just like, peace out, Brooklyn. <laughs> Peace out career, and she moves into an abandoned windmill on Long Island, which she dubbed the Mystical House. It's actually still there today. A lot of sound healing going on in a windmill. Yes. Just saying. A lot of repetitious sounds. I mean... Does she have a bathroom? Is it working? I would love to see pictures of this place. Does she, like, put a brick in front of the windmill at night so she can get some sleep? (laughs) I don't know. Okay. (laughs) 
I have a lot of questions, actually. I'd love to look into this. This is a big deal because she was essentially withdrawing from the mainstream art world. She still had her connections. She was still showing from time to time, but she was no longer chasing it. Mm. And according to historians, art historians, when you leave the mainstream art world, you're just in obscurity. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Good night. Nice to know you. So this is when she officially steps into obscurity. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Thanks. She's in the windmill. Yeah. That's obscure. She's so cool. That's pretty cool. That's right. pretty cool. Well, anyway, living in the windmill, you know, finally some quiet space. Okay, well, no, no. She's taking breaks to travel the world. It takes her five years, but she finally explores abstract depictions of her inner spiritual landscape at 45, mind you. Mm. And the spiritual landscapes start to beam with light. However, the windmill was sold when Agnes was nearly 50 years old and had no threads tethering her to the East Coast. So she thought of all the snapshots in her life, snapshots that fueled her layers and layers of thin, illuminative colors she would slowly apply to the canvas. The bright light tones reflecting off of the flora of the Hawaiian Islands, the sun rendering the landscape in complete clarity in the New Mexico desert, floating dust particles reflecting the Pasadena sky. And she thought, why not find a compromise between these? So she got on that streamliner to Los Angeles and then caught another train to Palm Springs, California, a man-made oasis in the harsh Californian desert, which was slowly becoming a popular vacation spot for Hollywood stars. And not being able to afford Palm Springs, she traveled six miles south to the tiny, affordable Cathedral City. She wrote, The vibration of this light, the spaciousness of these skies enthralled me. I knew there was a spirit in nature as in everything else, but here in the desert, it was an especially bright spirit. like Agnes was always destined to wind up in the desert, removing herself from the distractions of modern life. Windmills, junk mail, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. The, the person in the in the Statue of Liberty outfit waving their, <laughs> their things at you. The signs? Yeah, the signs. Thank Break you. dancing. <laughs> things is maybe a little too... Uh, things. Yeah, that could be a lot of too different vague. things. Yeah. Too vague. <laughs> a little too vague. <laughs> Well, leaving all that was very healing for her. Mm. She needed that space and that harmony with the land to both guide her studio practice and her spiritual evolution. And to evade taxes. (laughs) She was a real libertarian. I'm kidding. No, 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 no. I hope not. Go on. The desert is the opposite of a bustling city. It's kind of viewed as a wasteland, but that's because it's on another plane. Mm. You need to adjust to it, right? Like you said, Russell, there were no high-powered air conditioners or misting towers or Starbucks. That sounds amazing. That sounds kind of magical back then. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the desert is magical, right? Like, yes. If you think about it, like the mountains, the stars, I mean, you can see all the stars. All the stars. All the stars. I'm sure there are probably more stars that you can't see, but it feels like you can see them all. Right. Everything is a result of millions of years in the making. It's, it's just magical. That's pretty magical, yes. So within her first week there, Agnes wrote to a friend that she couldn't bear to go inside because the infinite night skies were just so beautiful. Right. She was enraptured right away. Agnes felt that magic, but more importantly, she felt like she belonged there. Quote, this region has taken me in, accepted me. 
end quote. So while the desert seemed to accept Agnes, Cathedral City could have gone either way. <laughs> there were only about like a hundred or so people yeah. at the time, still very underdeveloped. Um, yeah, and not really a cathedral anywhere either. I mean, it doesn't sound like that a big cathedral. Also, a hundred people's not really a city. Right. So uh, it was aspirational, okay? Like the name was a shout out to the canyon that it resembled, right? A cathedral okay. canyon. Oh, um, a cathedral. Okay, okay. Yeah, you know, the nature that encompassed Cathedral City, right? In the greater Coachella Valley. Mm. Apparently, back in the day, teachers would have to kick out rattlesnakes from the classroom. Well, Stephanie, were those rattlesnakes coming in to learn, though? (laughs) Were they rattling? Are these studious, quiet rattlesnakes? Are they not rattling snakes? Are they quiet snakes? (laughs) You know what? I don't know. Because a quiet snake is a snake that wants to learn. A quiet snake is a quiet snake that wants to learn. A rattlesnake? Uh Uh-huh. That's a snake that's on the defense. Okay. Maybe you gave it a D. You know, like that. maybe they didn't give it a chance to get right. a D. So, so I don't know. Don't kick out rattlesnakes before you know what's going on. I wasn't there. I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah. You know, well, what they say happened. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, Agnes, being this kind of weirdo outsider East Coast artist, mm. you would think she wouldn't have fit in with this tight knit community, but it turned out that this city appealed to a lot of people in Agnes's position. So the locals were more welcoming and honestly, they kind of relied on one another. Kind of had to, sounds like. A little bit. Yeah. Especially Agnes, okay, because she never learned how to drive. I don't know if it's because she was rightfully terrified of driving in New York City. New York City. And New York City, damn it. And or she relied on public transportation. But her neighbor, Willard Hillary, who sold her the land that she would later build her house on, would often give her rides. Mm. Okay, so Agnes would become close to him and his family over the years, but not close like she's going to show up and start like eating out of their fridge like a hungry yeah, bear or anything little, like that. Little, like Kramer from, yeah, Cosmo Kramer. Or Joey Tribbiani from Friends. I don't know. Joey? Yeah, yeah. I don't watch that. Marguerite, Willard's wife, would host get-togethers at Agnes's house. And Agnes would actually always ask her, Marguerite, please, could you please bring your beautiful silver tea set to my house? Yeah. To the party that you're hosting. Because she could communicate with it, Agnes. <laughs> what? Yeah. The tea set. Yeah. What would she say to the tea set? I don't know. Maybe it, it has like a soul in it. Or maybe Agnes just didn't look in the mirror that often and kept seeing herself. <laughs> like, I want to see that woman in the tea set again. Who's that nice lady in the tea set? Who's that nice lady in the tea set? Bring her on over, Marguerite. (laughs) Okay. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so it wasn't a one-way street, though. Like, Agnes would paint portraits of the family to show her thankfulness for their friendship. So, you know, she was given back to. Wasn't no silver tea set, but it'll do, right? It'll do. Now, the community of Cathedral City. Cathedral City. (laughs) Oh, my God. What was that? Cathedral City seemed to attract misfits that came from all over. There were neighbors like Christina Lillian, a costume designer from Kansas who made it big in Hollywood and retired at 35. She could have stayed in Hollywood. She had the dough, but she wanted to wear pantalones Mm. and she didn't want to raise a carnival. Okay. No payasos for her. Oh, Um, okay, okay, okay. So there was even a budding artist colony for women that Agnes became a part of. Mm. There were also likely queer couples that the town folk seemed to respect. Okay, that's awesome. Awesome. 1930s. Nice. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there is speculation that Agnes may have been queer, but there is no evidence of that in her writing. Right. This place was just an oasis for these kinds of outsiders. Mm. Or maybe they were just willing to take anyone in <laughs> to call it a city. Yeah, they wanted that city status. Ag- <laughs> Agnes herself helped build a community of Cathedral City as well. Cathedral City. Cathedral City. 
by selling her landscapes to fund the art center and gallery, but she also sold to locals and tourists to pay her bills. I mean, this was definitely a job to her. She Mm. was not fond of painting hundreds and hundreds of landscapes to make ends meet. But this allowed her to develop the paintings that we know her for today. Her meditation room is where her abstractions would come to her through highly detailed drawings and notes before she started the process of painting and building up those painstaking layers and layers of glazes. But going from landscapes to making work that she loved was, quote, like painting with a moth's wing and with music instead of paint, end quote. That's I love that. That's great. I know. It's gorgeous. And while it seems like she ditched the capital A art world entirely, she was developing a following Hmm. like, for example, the painters from the Transcendental Painting Group from New Mexico, which was made up of about 10 artists, and they totally deserve an episode all on their own. Winky face. Winky face. Maybe in the distance. A a winky face in the distance. Far away winky face. Yeah. (laughs) Winky face that's you kind of can't see because it's out there. But you believe it's out there. You know it's winking at you. You at least think it's winking at you. Is it a cosmic wink? Maybe. Okay. Don't use that. Um, their mission was all about exploring spirituality through abstract painting. And they were so inspired by Agnes that they actually convinced her, uh, you know, because she was pretty shy, to right. become their honorary president. It's so <laughs> weird to think that there's like a president of a painting group. Yeah, right. You can see their work change. And I mean, really change yeah. after she first starts to exhibit her work with theirs. Like they start to kind of look like little mini Agnes's. Yeah, I love it. It's cute. But they weren't just fans. Mm. Russell listeners, they became friends and they would eventually make the trek to visit Agnes in Cathedral City all the way from Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's a long ride. Car or streamliner. Right. Or hot air balloon. Yeah. Or I guess hair, carriage is a horse. Okay, sorry. Wow. Um, They physically traveled there, listeners. Okay, no they're... no astral travel, Stephanie? No. You sure about that? Absolutely. Maybe we that's have... like a little bit like a, you know, like a FaceTime call. Can we astral travel first to make sure you're not like a psychopath? I don't know. They took chances back then. Yeah, I don't know yeah. like what, what, what else they had. Anyway, doubting Russell. We have evidence. We have proof. There are photographs of them visiting Agnes in Mm. Cathedral City. Hanging out in the desert. They are. It's kind of cute. Cathedral City. Cathedral City. But all of these good things didn't happen overnight. Like the desert, in a way, it was the result of many things. You can't choose your childhood, and changing your circumstances can be difficult and sometimes even impossible, but Agnes pulled it off. It took a long-ass time, but Mm. she built a life that made her happy. She wrote in her sketchbook a few days before she passed away that, you know, life was really all about light. And she lived by it, from her home to her inspiration, right down to the countless layers of glazes on her glowing canvases. There they are. There they are, Stephanie. They're back. You know, they've been pretty polite this episode, I gotta say. Uh, I'm gonna go feed them. Yeah. How about that? Uh, Vominos, right? For me. All Vominos. Vominos, slice pantry. That's your catchphrase. Bye. For a good example of how glazes function, think back to throwing on some sunglasses. The UV blocking film on the glasses surface changes the color of the world right in front of you. Sometimes in the right light with the right shade of film, sunglasses will make everything look better. Now imagine taking that effect and applying it specifically to only segments of a painting you're working on with specific tones and hues in mind. Does that orange you painted look like a, a knobby, deflated, sun-bleached beach ball? Uh, I guess try, you, know, you could try a glaze. Glazing has been used for centuries to give a painting a vibrant, rich depth when it can't be achieved by your typical paint mixtures. In a sense, it's just an optical illusion because the light passes through to the painting and it reflects back to your eyes, but only in the portions that utilize that glaze. 
To glaze, you first have to thin your paint with a medium. You want it to be thin and runny, but maybe not so runny that you lose the pigment entirely and it just slides off the surface. If you want to glaze in the traditional way, you can't choose just any old color. The pigments that are used for glazing have to skew a little bit more transparent. Otherwise, you'll end up with a layer of the consistency of chalk which, depending on what you're going for, can actually look pretty good too. Glazing is incredibly tricky. It involves a lot of trial and error, and even with quick-drying mediums, a lot of time. The most common way to glaze is with oil paint, but you can definitely do it with watercolors, you can do it with acrylics, and even tempera in some cases. To get experimenting, make sure the initial layer of paint is completely dry before glazing. Consider the type of brush that you're using. Do you want it to have a texture, or do you want it to be super smooth? And keep swatches of layers colors to see how dramatically colors can change with every layer added. Stephanie, it's really nice out there. Were they wearing I, bibs? Like I mean, astral bibs, bibs, sure, with oh, little like astros. like paintbrushes on them and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, our little Pontramon tummies have been satiated once again. Let's get back to Agnes. So like we were saying, Agnes lived by light. In the early morning hours of the day, she observed the atmospheric haze blanketing the mountains, the sunrise light turning electric white, as it catches and refracts in the dusty air. Agnes waited outside with her canvas, easel, and paints for neighbor Willard, who would soon come by to pick her up and drop her off on Date Palm Road, only to come back hours later for her as it neared sundown. Collecting her experiences from the day as the car bumped along the road, from the passenger seat window, Agnes watched the crystal clear night slowly appear. At home, before heading to her studio, she briefly stepped outside to catch a glimpse of the stunning night sky. It was almost as if she could see every star. Stephanie, we're here. We're on the shores of La Isla de Artslice. All right. Before we returned to the Artslice Museum, on top of the Artslice Hilltop, mm -hmm. surrounded by the candy and condom moat, right. we had to hike miles of narrow switchbacks between mm. crumbling canyons in the deserts, the hot desert sun. Wow. Until the path petered out, and we were just, I'm sure you remember, but we were totally lost. Totally we lost. We were lost. But then, Stephanie, do you remember the presence we felt watching down from above, taking care of us. It was several bighorn sheep. <gasps> and they appeared and motioned us, kind of did this thing, you know, to follow <laughs> them. And they led us through a pathless valley of like cacti, hmm. wildflowers, coach whips to a cliffside ethereal thrift store <gasps> just as the sun had begun to set. Next to an elote stand. Yeah, oh, I mean ethereal elote. Yes, an ethereal elote because... I was hungry from all of that hiking. Uh, obviously, obviously. I get which grumpy. is where yeah, which is where we found two Agnes Pelton paintings. <gasps> Not at the Elote stand, but in the thrift store. Okay. Uh, for a very reasonable price. <laughs> and the clerks, after we checked out, you know, they put it in a little baggie. Uh, you know, it was, not, it was also like packed well. Okay. You know, it's an ethereal I was worried. Baggie. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the clerks were kind enough to astral project us back to the shores of La Isla de Artslice, <laughs> where we're gonna do something a little bit differently today. Stephanie? Right. 
Right. Oh, sorry. I was still munching on my ethereal elote. In your mind, yeah. No, it really happened. Okay. All right. Just yeah, no, I didn't no, share, it really, doesn't this all mean it really happened. happened. I don't even know why you're I just didn't realize you still had it. I mean, I can't see it. Exactly. It's just for me. Yeah. For me only. Anyway, we have Orbits from 1934 and The Blessed from 1941. We are going to put these two works up on the Art Slice Museum walls, and we're gonna discuss how and if they connect to one another. And of course, ultimately decide if they belong in the Art Slice Museum. Of course. Often Agnes's work visually bounces your eye around the composition which in paintings like The Future or Sandstorm can actually move your eye away from the center of the composition. Right. Most paintings, especially around this time, they were just there to be looked at, right? (laughs) And these kind of reroute you. They're like a traffic detour. Mm -hmm. But once you're in that detour, you're paying attention to it. It almost like forces you to look at it a little bit more to really pay attention to it. Well, I don't want to miss my exit and get lost. (laughs) Well, yeah. So in works like Orbits and The Blessed, Agnes is using less visual guiding. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we would call that visual guiding like in Sandstorm. Here, you're wandering around on your own, but it's just as attention grabbing. In Orbits, it's a black cumulonimbus cloud shape, which seems to have ascended from this glowing flower containing a solar system within it. The Blessed is a similar composition, but instead of a deep, dark cloud ascending from above, it's a volcano of glowing, translucent, electric white light erupting upwards. It's softer. She's really using those glazes. Right. Orbits is mostly clean, crisp shapes Mm -hmm. and edges. They both have very similar anchor points representing the earth that we're standing on, though. Orbits has a lazy mountain silhouette. (laughs) It kind of looks like the mountain is like stretching out doing some yoga poses, right? Maybe some agony yoga. Who knows? (laughs) And Blessed has this shape I'm, I'm like in love with. Stephanie, okay. you see it down there at the bottom? Like, you want to get in on a, uh, on a like, a try, a try marriage with this thing? Just me, you, Whoa. and the shape? Whoa. The wavering black landscape silhouette? <laughs> I don't think so. Pass. Pass. Both are intimidating and welcoming. It's Agnes's experience of the sublime. Hmm. The sublime being something that is, like, overwhelmingly beyond us, overwhelmingly powerful, beautiful, but it's also kind of terrifying. What I love so much about Agnes's work from this time period is that there's always a sense that something is beyond the frame. Okay. That there is more to the story that we can't see. Sometimes it's when she paints these little vignettes or when forms rush in from the sides of the composition. Gotcha. But in both of these, the action is above, either traveling upwards or transcending downwards. Okay. It reminds me a lot of one of Hilma Offklin's triptych altarpieces. Yeah, I, I would guess that both Agnes and Hilma are interpreting that spirit and matter relationship mm. in theosophy, right? Yeah. But it, I mean, it's not like required reading. Like, I think the feeling translates without it. But, you know, speak of the devil. Uh, in Orbits, my favorite moments are when that glowing scalloped-looking flower... <coughs> Ritz cracker. You think it's a Ritz cracker? <laughs> it looks like a Ritz I could see cracker. that, yeah. <laughs> Glowing Ritz cracker. Anyway, weaves and then tucks into one of those star orbit so pathways. Good. It's so good. Which the pathways are depicted in dashed lines. All but one of the paths intersect with one another. I mean, the detail. Every single one of those dashes has gradations of color. Yeah, exactly. It's so similar to the weaving and the topographical layering. And I think it's number six of the adulthood series in the 10 largest, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, astral travel. See, I've converted you. I've converted you. Damn it. (laughs) I think I'm being slowly converted to. I got to get off Pablo Sender's YouTube channel. (laughs) No. Okay. So these two did not know each other. Mm. There is no way they ever would have. There is no way Agnes ever saw Hilma's work. Except unless astral travel. (laughs) Asterisks. Asterisks. (laughs) Okay. I can't say that. 
It's okay. Even the stars on those dashed pathways look a lot like Hilma snails traveling on their spirals. Yeah. Some dashed paths intersect, others overlap, some are closed loops. One is like this rebel and it's totally open. It's totally (laughs) away from the other groupings. Those pathways reminded me of Caller's mobiles, but flattened. And Giotto's comet flying over the nativity. (laughs) Three artists separated by centuries. It's just really great to see how artists interpret similar phenomena differently. How many points are on those stars, Stephanie? Oh, God. I don't know. One has four, one has five, one has six. Okay, so the five-pointed star is the symbol of the microcosmo or microcosmo, Stephanie, which in (laughs) Theospeak illustrates the human's place in the larger spirit or the macrocosmos, which is often illustrated by a six-pointed star. (laughs) I have no idea about the four-pointed star. It's okay. okay. (laughs) Let, Let it be a mystery. Well, if orbits is a deep, infinite night sky, the blessed could be the morning after. And what is striking is how quiet this painting seems to me Mm -hmm. for being like an ethereal explosion. Well, it's Fantasia-esque, and I'm not the only one who has compared Agnes's work to Disney animations from this era. They do look a little cinema-esque. Yeah, they do look very cinematic. And they were both basically made around the same time. Everything has like a soft edge, Mm -hmm. except for that shape (laughs) that I love so much at the bottom. But this is a glaze-loaded painting. I mean, it's like maximum glaze. There are these glowing figure-like shapes in the Mm -hmm. center of the eruption surrounded by all these sparks. Yes, and there's a word in Spanish that doesn't quite translate, in my opinion, uh, encandilar. Okay. The translation is dazzle. I don't know. Maybe it's because it rhymes with razzle. I don't think (laughs) it has quite the same effect. To me, it's when you stare at something bright for too long and when you look away, these fuzzy splotches of the brightness are left in your vision. Mm. Like the thing you couldn't keep your eyes off of was so visually powerful that it had such an effect on you to leave you in such a state of splendor. So forgive me, listeners, if you disagree and think that dazzle totally encompasses that feeling. I'm just saying. Yeah, I don't know. what, What is it called again? Encandilar. Yeah, that's better. Like, like English needs a step of its game. <laughs> this also reminds me of the Virgin of Guadalupe. The sparks look like the sun rays surrounding her. Okay. Uh, the figure shapes also seem to have a slightly tilted head. Okay, like yeah, tilted. yeah, yeah. The image of the Virgin of Guadalupe has been reproduced countless times, but in the original depiction, she was depicted atop a black crescent moon, mm. which was the symbol of the Aztec moon god of darkness. And the Virgin Mary has taken over that with God's power. And the RC squared has colonized your power. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, the wavering black shape at the bottom there Mm -hmm. that I love so much. That's a really good comparison. I would have never thought of that. I would have never thought of Caravaggio. You're welcome. She's striking a pose, listeners. (laughs) There's always a struggle between light and dark in her work. I think that's why we're so drawn to it. That tension. That tension, yeah. Obviously, Agnes is borrowing a lot from theosophy and those other occultic readings, but she also has developed her own lexicon in a way. Yeah. That's why I said she reminded me more of Charles Birchfield. If you remember back to his conventions for abstract thought drawings, you didn't really need to see his lexicon Mm -hmm. to make sense of the work. Mm -hmm. But also, it brought a lot more depth to the work when you saw what it meant to him. You can do both. You can see what it means to you, and you can see what it meant to the artist. It would just be nice to see what these paintings meant to her. Right, which I think brings us to the idea that these shouldn't be interpreted literally. Mm -hmm. I think we read half a dozen books on Agnes and that was the common refrain like sure we can bring in someone who is an expert in the occult and theosophy but that doesn't matter you can just enjoy them as they are well to which you know we were both screaming like (laughs) 
No. Um, do you need that to enjoy the work? Of course not. You yeah. don't. Never read the plaque before before you look at the work. Keyword before exactly. you look at the work. I would encourage art historians to not do a major disservice to Agnes Pelton right. or other occult artists. Do that research. Bring in those who have knowledge of what these symbols yep. might mean. Yep. Don't just write it off. Imagine if we had no idea what was happening in Catholic paintings. Like, imagine if we didn't know who that uh, that guy that... Enrico Scraveni. Scraveni, the payday loan CEO asshole. <laughs> I mean, we would still be able to enjoy the works, but we would miss out on all that loaded detail. Artists can work didactically and emotively. It's not just one over the other. Right. And I think that is something that has delayed our Hilma 2 episode one of many things, quite yes. a bit. <laughs> Her work is very loaded with meaning yeah. and there's very little comprehensive research on it. It would be easy for us to just release the episode and say, hey, look at these amazing paintings. Yep. We love them. Aren't they great? But we can't just write it off as mysterious. I mean, how many times have we heard our historians say just that? It doesn't well, lend anything to the work. You can just enjoy these as abstractions. Literally writing it off. <laughs> I, and I mean, I think we're about to fall into the tiger trap of are these abstractions at all, uh, which is a kind of a dumb argument, in my opinion. But maybe we should wrap this up before we fall into another <laughs> pitfall tiger trap. So, Stephanie, are these going in the Art Slice Museum? Let's, yes. let's do it at the same. Oh, OK. Well, yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I was going to say let's do it at the same time. Oopsie. Welcome, Agnes, to El Museo de Art Slice. Welcome. Unfamiliar with her work. Now she's one of my favorite painters. Like, honestly, I've been wanting to paint more because I've been looking at her works. I need to get back in the studio. You know what I love even more? What? Is that we keep saying this after every episode with every <laughs> artist. That we well, that's do. the good thing about like researching this in a different way. I feel like before when I would research art history, nothing about that made me want to get in the studio. But now wow. every one of these makes me want to get in the studio. Same. Same. And I like that we keep covering artists like this. Yeah. It gives me hope because <laughs> definitely this. Art making can be a parasitic relationship. The artist makes, the collector collects, sells, or donates, getting their name on the wing of a museum, and qualifying for tax loopholes. Add to that the biases and societal structures that confine so many people, not just artists, and the result is almost always that the artist benefits the least from their own work. Agnes was no exception, but she wisely removed herself from the expectations and pressures of the art world, instead living a life that was deeply rewarding for her, investigating her curiosity with the universe and her spiritual place within it. She didn't live and die in obscurity when she left for the desert. Her career was on her terms. She cultivated relationships with the desert, with her work, with herself, and with her community. In the few pictures there are of her later in life, she's with people, and she's smiling, her paintings adorning the walls of their homes. Agnes was anything but obscure. She made a lasting impression on people, and she became a fixture of Cathedral City. When she passed away, one painting was selected to display at the funeral. What was chosen, and I think aptly, was the glowing ascension of the blessed.
So listeners, that is going to do it for us today. The featured music today was Doug and Mike Starn from the album Public Private by Rob Lynch and Jonathan Hughes, which is seriously a great album. It's been one of my favorites recently. There's a lot of space and a lot of depth and layers to it. So if you're into Agnes Pelton paintings, I think you'll like this album. It's great. Pick it up. We will link them in the show notes. Don't forget to share the show with a friend. Leave a five-star written review on your pod player of choice. And join us on Patreon. And no. And no. Your kid could not have painted that. Bye. Bye. Bye.